0: Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Miss Madeline Brand. Madeline Brand is a journalist and host of Press Play on KCRW, Southern California's flagship NPR affiliate. She's best known for a 25-year career in public radio, reporting and hosting for NPR in Los Angeles, New York, Washington, and beyond. Please give a very
1: warm welcome to Miss Madeline Brand.
2: Thank you, Lewis. Oh, it's so great to see you all out here. It's not that chilly. And we're not gonna be grim. That's for later programs. This one's gonna be great and inspiring and uplifting. Let me introduce the panel. To my right is Ping Yao, historian of pre-modern China at Cal State LA. Her research focuses on medieval Chinese women's experiences in everyday life and religious practice. To her right, give it up yeah. To her right is Helen Morales, classicist and cultural critic at UC Santa Barbara with a special focus on ancient Greece. Her interests include the ancient novel, Greek imperial poetry, mythology, and sexual politics. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Antigone Rising, about misogyny, feminism, and protest. It's out next spring. Keep an eye out for that. And at the end but certainly not the last, Tracy Ardren, anthropological archaeologist at the University of Miami. She's written extensively on gender identity in Maya civilization and culture and is a consulting curator for the Lowe Art Museum in Miami. Okay. Okay, well, we want to understand feminism in the ancient world, particularly as it can inform how we view feminism today and how we view women's struggles today. In three major areas, I would say, the struggle continues in political, economic, and sexual equality. So I'm wondering, when you look back at your particular areas of study, if there were similar protests, similar um, uh, uprisings on the part of women in those particular arenas, such as we're seeing today with the midterm elections, for example, with the me Too pushback, um, with a lot of focus and agitation over pay equity in places like Silicon Valley. Is there anything comparable in the ancient worlds that you study? In? And let's begin with you in China, Bing. Thank you very much. And thank you very much
0: for inviting me. It's a great event. Um, I would say in ancient China, um, it's a little bit different. Um, so the gender system in ancient China is based on yin and yang ideology. So women in ancient China, I would say they strive the best possible uh, outcomes through the, uh, the role as a sort of a, a complementary uh, force within yin and yang. So I wouldn't say that there were much protests or, or uh, say I want to be a dominant force, but they definitely played a huge role in the shaping
2: of traditional China. So but the yin and the yang, so the yin is traditionally female-oriented? Female or, uh,
0: submissive, soft, dark, uh-huh. um, so they played a role in the family as uh, a wife and a mother and a daughter, ideally submit to a uh, uh, father when you were young, to husband when you married, to the son when you widowed. But in mm-hmm. reality, there are a lot of uh, things they can accomplish through their roles.
2: Okay, but it had to be subversive, not necessarily direct.
0: Um, Not direct confrontation.
2: Okay. Tracy, what about in Maya culture? Thank you, everybody, for being here, and thank you for
3: organizing this event, Zocalo. Um, I don't think we can see large-scale organized social movements in ancient Maya culture. Um, That doesn't mean they didn't exist. I think... um, We know from later historical periods in Mexico that there were women's uprisings um, during the colonial period. But sticking with the ancient world, um, we actually have a situation that's not entirely different than what um, Ping just described for China in that there was an ideology of complementarity. So as opposed to the culture in which we live today, in which there isn't really this ideology, in in most ancient new world cultures, including the Maya, there was a sense that even though power was structured that um, patriarchally and, and descent was structured through or con, um, considered through male lines, there was a sense that both men and women had complementary skills, that they were inherently good at different things that when combined together created a, a full life. And so for that, then you were, um, from that flowed, regular uh, religious responsibilities, ceremonial responsibilities, um, and work responsibilities, and um, in terms of crafting and producing certain kinds of things. And so from that sort of ideological position, certain women advocated for greater power, but... um, and we, I know we're going to talk about some of those kinds yeah. of extraordinary examples, but I don't think that necessarily there was the same need to overthrow a structure, an ideological structure as I think is kind of what's going on right now, right? Where we're trying to actually resist um, or reshape the, um, the value system that we live there in.
2: There wasn't a concept of the patriarchy.
3: Well, there was a patriarchy se. from our perspective today. Looking back on the past, it's a patriarchal system, but I don't think... Within it, necessarily, there was the same sense that um, it, it needed to be changed in the way that we today are feeling like we need to change the, patri- the patriarchy.
2: Mm. Helen, the, so the modern struggle for feminism and women's rights in from the early twentieth century on till now for a second, third, fourth—are we in the fourth wave of feminism? I don't know. OK, let's just say we are.
1: So that's
2: why. Uh, why not? Um, it, they really took inspiration from classic uh, myths, right, and classic stories from Greece, May, many of the leaders of modern feminism.
1: Yes. Um, so right from uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Second Sex, through... Um, uh, feminist psychoanalysts, uh, feminist theorists like Judith Butler, Bonnie Honig, um, they will turn to ancient, ancient myths. Um, in, in particular, Sophocles' Antigone is one that's well known. I know it's taught in many high schools. Some of you are nodding. Um, that's, that's what, and, and, and you can see why, because Sophocles' Antigone has um, a uh, emphatic, um, committed, young woman who is prepared to stand up for what she believes against a um, uh, to increasingly totalitarian state. Um, so, you know, uh, it could be Malala Yousafzai who fits that model. Um, mm. Today it's Greta Thunberg who fits that model. So it's, it's, a, it's a myth that we return to again and again. And the, the the Greek tragedy was more complicated than that. <laughs> yes. um, Antigone was a much more uh, uh, difficult figure um, for an ancient Greek audience. Um, they would have seen her as much more transgressive, I think, uh, whereas we tend to have more sympathy. Huh. Um, but but it's a you know it's, it's and it an is example. a tragedy for a reason. It's a, it's a tragedy, and they also thought that. Um, if you look at medical writings as a frame for it, there was some idea that if you were of a certain age and you weren't married, like Antigone was not married, and you were obsessed with uh, drama and death and so on, then uh, you had a disease. I mean, they, they really thought that you were, you were mad, so... Um, we call them teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a kind of... It, it's the origins... In some ways, it fits in with the origins of hysteria, so I wish it was just... Teenagers, it it 's become a broad brush throughout the ages from ancient Greece through through which to um, you know paint all women as as, as, as mad um, but most recently, so not just tragedy um, most recently um, Elisa Milano called for uh, a sex strike to protest um, increasingly restrictive abortion laws and um she called for this on Twitter, and, in her, uh, and she then wrote a couple of articles about it, and she talked about it as a Lysistratic protest, mm-hmm. which goes back to Aristophanes' um, play, uh, ancient Greek, uh, ancient Athenian play, in which the women of uh, Athens bonded together with those of other city-states, warring city-states, um, and did several things, including a sex strike... Um, in order to uh, put an end to the civil war in Greece uh, at that time. So that's, a, that's the most it's recent crazy. example I can give you.
2: I don't know if it was controversial back then, but that's a pretty controversial call, assuming that women don't like sex or don't want to have sex or that it's onerous for them.
1: So I think that's a modern interpretation. Right. In the play the women are uh, portrayed as as sex-starved as the men, right? It really hurts the women to have to take this oath, right? Um, everybody's sex-starved, apart from old people who take over the Acropolis. Right? Some of them are sex-starved, but some of them take over the the economic and political power, which, it, which is an aspect that, in the modern reception of Lysistrata, isn't so much used for feminism, but there might be a better bet, right, taking over the... You know, political and economic power, rather than just focusing on the on the sex strike. But I mean, in in, in, a, in antiquity, you know, it's a fantasy, it's a comedy, it's a play, and, and there were uh, elements in it, political arguments in it that would have resonated, that were sensible, that uh, so it wasn't just outrageous, um, but it wasn't taken seriously as a as a as a um, strategy uh, as. As Elisa Milano and others have, have recommended, it should be.
2: Has that ever been taken as a, seriously as a strategy in ancient China or in Mayan civilizations? Either.
3: Even though we have a writing system for the Maya, we, the, the writing system was very limited in the content that it describes. So we don't have written myths. We don't have written histories of, uh, so, so, sort of social movements or social periods. We have primarily biographies of royal families and the leaders of those royal families. Um, so we just seriously are limited in what we can say about um, daily life to the material evidence or the artistic evidence. They're both very rich, but they don't really get to that kind of level of detail. So I don't, I don't think we have any way to answer the question, really, of whether there was a sex strike. I like to think that there probably was at some point in time, somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, why not?
0: Well, um, in ancient China, we do have a lot of written materials. You know, you can can, uh, find out their um, uh, sexual lives. Um, But I don't really think that was the case. I never read anything about sex strike. Um, I think mainly because uh, women, I mean, having a child uh, to continue the family line is the priority for Chinese patriarchal system, so wife or concubines they try very hard to get pregnant, and uh, Chinese women in ancient societies um, gain power through having children, especially mm. having sons so I think probably because of that we don 't really uh, um, I assume there would not. In many occasions we would have sex shy.
2: <laughs> well, you raise an interesting topic, um, and that is the concubine. What was the role of the concubine?
0: Well, um, of course, the uh, practice started uh, probably, uh, I would say, officially. Uh, Third century BCE. Um, before third century BCE, uh, men would take multiple wives, but then when the perception of yin and yang uh, took hold, so you would have ideally one husband, one wife. Then when men wanted more than one uh, female uh, partner, then he would take concubines. But the status of concubine um, is definitely. Definitely different from a wife. Uh, so theoretically, the role of concubine is to having uh, to give birth to more children to make sure the, the family
2: line continues. Was she consi- like a mistress? Um, no, that's not it she uh, word,
0: but... According to the law code, um, which um, we have the complete law code from the Tang Dynasty at this point, um, a concubine was considered married to the husband, so legally married to the husband. So it's really different from uh, a mistress or a slave or... you know, But of a but lesser
2: status than the much wife. Much
0: lesser status, um, um, especially um, a, a wife, you have to have the equal status um um to the husband uh, so usually from the uh, if it's a elite man you marry an elite woman but he probably would take a woman from a commoner's family as a concubine
2: would there be a similar system in mayan culture
3: there were not we are currently debating whether or not there were concubines or something equivalent to that. It's a, you know, it's a very difficult word, and all, any of the other words are also problematic. There are images of women who show um, themselves in a state of undress in elite Maya art, and. Often they are in these sort of party scenes and right now we're discussing whether or not these are mythological scenes because a lot of this art concerns mythological subjects or whether these are actually palace scenes which is the other major topic um, depicted in the art. And uh, there's not necessarily a consensus. We do know that it's very unusual that there would be um, any nudity. That's not something that's shown in in, uh, Maya royal art except in mythological context. So I fall on the toward the end of the spectrum, thinking these are mythological scenes. That being said, there, there was a practice um, by which royal uh, men, kings in particular, could take multiple wives. Um, but marriage was very much a political decision in ancient Maya culture, so these were usually, the second and third and fourth wives were usually from subsidiary uh, polities or kingdoms. Um, and, Sometimes also the reverse happened, where um, a very high-status princess was sent to a uh, to sort of to the, the suburbs or some place um, that was up and coming, in order to link that polity with the uh, with her home, with her home family's polity. Um, and uh, we have some really fascinating details about what their lives were like. You can imagine somebody from um, Los Angeles being sent far into the middle of the state somewhere where where she may or may not ever see her family of origin again or her home, Um, but she would bring with her a lot of the culture of the place where she grew up, so she would probably bring, we know that this is what happened in Maya times, she brought ideas about uh, the kind of architecture she would like to see, and then she brought perhaps even a court of architects or artists with her. Um, She brought probably um, cuisine or the knowledge of uh, elaborate kinds of food and entertaining, and then
2: would she live by herself? No, no, she would have
3: a, a, a court, but uh-huh. um, we're not clear exactly but, how... But
2: not a husband with her or a, a mate of any right. kind. As so... far
3: I mean, as the official records go, these women married into that local country bumpkin situation. <laughs> and they had to, she had to put up with whatever country situation she found herself in there.
2: Okay, yeah. so a guy she'd never met... Exactly, right. Married to him, right. have to deal.
3: Unrefined, whereas she was.
2: But what's interesting
3: is the way that that's described in the inscriptions is about her tremendous um, ability to improve the royal bloodline. So this was a, uh, these were semi-divine uh, rulers. And if you were a princess who came from one of these very high-status cities and you moved out to the country to one of these smaller sites, you were literally bringing a higher quality of blood with you more divine power, um, more powerful ancestors, more ritual skill, more ability to summon ancestors for success in war or other kinds of events. So there's a lot of description of of how important they were for improving the
2: the locals. Helen, what was the role of the wife in Ancient Greece?
1: Um, Not as exciting, perhaps, as as the role of the prostitute, or the high-class prostitute. So we... we, um, Wives uh, were meant to live in, and and I'm talking now about uh, elite women. Um, We we know very little about slaves. Um, We know very little about um, more impoverished uh, families. Um, But... But most women would have women's quarters in in their houses and would be, um, would go out rarely. Uh, An exception to that would be uh, women who had religious posts, so priestesses um, and and women, and all women would uh, go, be able to go for funerals or for religious festivals. Um, so they were really confined to the home. They couldn't yeah. leave. Imagine only being able to go out for a religious festival, oh. um, <laughs> so. So. So.
2: Uh, so were they okay with that or? <laughs> were they? seems a little so,
1: well, <clears throat> not nice. We don't have any direct evidence, I think I'm right in saying, um, for, for wives complaining. About that. Um, where, we'd have to, where we'd have to go is somewhere like Greek tragedy and rely on um, male playwrights to uh, translate um, s- uh, female psychology um, on, on stage. So, for example, Medea um, in Euripides' tragedy, Medea complains that Jason can, her husband, can go out of the house and talk to people, whereas she has to stay in the house. She complains about having to provide a dowry in order to get married. Um, She says she'd rather stand in battle three times than give birth once, <laughs> and, right, <laughs> Who, who's given birth that doesn't agree with that? Um, so we get, we get an insight into female psychology through some um, through some tragic speeches um, and, and evidence like that. Um, and that speech of Medea's was taken and um, used in early suffragette speeches, early women's suffrage speeches, because, mm. It, 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 you know, it, it really is an important um, rebellious speech. Um, but, of course, it's, it's also by Medea, who's a foreign sorceress who kills a kid. So it's, <laughs> you, you have to extract the speech and maybe not look at the whole narrative. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you were saying it was maybe better to be a prostitute in terms of freedom? You have freedom. I, Well, w- one has to be, care- I'm going to walk that back, right? Um, <laughs> There, there is a historical narrative. So, so often historians will say um, that uh, high-class prostitutes, they're called hetira, the hetaira in uh, ancient Greece, um, had more liberation than wives or, um, or lower-class prostitutes. And why they say this is that these were women who were um, uh, given some kind of education, who uh, were taught to play musical instruments, taught to converse with men, and could acquire quite a lot of wealth, right? Um, and also fame. Um, so there are some wonderful anecdotes. Most, we don't have any colourful anecdotes. Well, many... I can't think of any colourful anecdotes about wives. But there are lots of colourful anecdotes about um, uh, high-class prostitutes. So... Um, the, the Hitira Phryne was on charge, uh, was in the law court charged with some kind of impiety. And uh, her lawyer had tried every trick in the book, and it just wasn't working. She was looki- it was looking as if she was going to be found guilty. So she, this is an anecdote, right? A, the, the, at the story goes that she takes her top off, and the jurors will go, <gasps> Uh, And she's acquitted, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So now because, and and the the same Phryne was said to uh, have enough money to offer to rebuild the walls of Thebes after Alexander the Great raised them to the ground. Um, But she would only do that if the city put up a plaque which said... The prostitute Phryne has uh, built these walls, and the city wouldn't do that. Right. Again, probably apocryphal anecdotes, but an, an example of um, more freedom of a kind. Uh, but it comes through selling your body. So, it, uh, so I, you know, when I think about Phryne, I think the, and this is an imperfect kind of analogy, but I think about Kim Kardashian and, and her and how she was made, if you like, through the sex tape. Right? So now she's a celebrity and she has a lot of money and she has uh, what counts for power. But it is through, um, initially through the sex tape and through uh, um, continued objectification, if you like. It's an imperfect analogy, but it's one way of thinking about um, uh, high-class prostitutes. May I add? Please
2: though. edit that out. <laughs>
1: that, that stays in. That stays in. In antiquity. In antiquity.
0: <laughs> May I add, though, in ancient China, um, at least royal women uh, would be very proud of themselves for not only going to ba- battles, but also giving birth to children. So, right, they were like... Uh, generals, leading uh, armies, fighting enemies, and then also having children. So, um, yeah, that, that was a little bit different. <laughs>
2: so, but the, the courtesan of the concubine, um, two different things. There were their courtesans, I guess we're not using that word in polite society, but okay, the prostitute, is that a better word?
1: none mm-hmm. of these terms are great are yeah they? they're not but, great. Right. <laughs> um
2: did that exist because there was the concubine or in china um, you mean cortisone a
0: prostitute uh prostitutes <laughs> sex workers um, well i would say um courtesans. i use cortisones more often then prostitutes. Uh, later dynasties may be prostitutes, but early dynasties I would say courtesans because they provide uh, not only sex but also uh, entertainment, literature, reciting poems, and you know, uh, accompany officials to um, you know uh, meeting uh, foreign delegates and everything. So so it's not just sex sex work, but there are different types of courtesans as well. Um, in the Tang Dynasty where I, um, the period I study, there are actually five different types of courtesans. Five court, different types? Five, and you have uh, official courtesans who station in, uh, in uh, for example, regional offices and then just, you know, uh, providing entertainment. Um, and also receiving um, uh, other officials. You have a palace courtesans providing entertainment for the emperors for banquets, but also they had obligation to uh, provide sex for emperors as well. And then you have military courtesans um, um, to entertain military generals, right? And you have uh, house courtesans in official families to provide entertainment for house banquets, right, and it's a lot of fun there. Um, <laughs> but then you also have, we call the uh, um, public courtesan house in the street, in the market for for paid service.
2: Okay,
0: so it seems
3: like a lot of courtesans. Is there five? Five? So <laughs> five times? A lot of activity. Yes. Okay, yeah. Can I just add that um, this is actually, what we do have evidence for in Maya art at least is the role of women in diplomacy. I've called it diplomacy before. Right. So it's a sort of court events, court, court entertainment. Um, when uh, One of the most common themes in classic Maya art is the um, royal visit, where there's a king sitting on a throne and then uh, other people come to visit him. And sometimes they're bringing tribute and goods, sometimes they're coming to report about a military adventure. And very often there's, there are female um, members of court present in the scene as well, and sometimes they 're providing food, uh, very high status food sometimes they 're just witnessing the scene uh, sometimes they 're directing the scene even we have a couple of images like that so there 's clearly a role that elite women played in um, in this these forms of, sort of social interaction, like highly charged moments of social interaction. And I think that that's an avenue to, to power that they had. I mean, if you were particularly skilled at making men who were strangers to, to one another comfortable together, or if you were particularly um, skilled in conversation and able to you know, neutralize a tense political moment, then obviously that puts you in a position of power. And so it seems to be that that's one of the things that, that royal women did.
2: I mean, it almost seems like the role of the first lady now, that that is a very similar role. I
3: think our first ladies are much more restricted than that. it is, it's like our first ladies don't really, aren't let loose to do that in the same sort of a way. we They're very controlled uh, in terms of how much they get to interact. They're not really in the room when major negotiations are taking place and- I
1: bet that's not true. <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: Maybe we don't see them, right? But it is somewhat what we expect of the the first dinner,
2: and she's supposed to preside over that, and 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 that is what you're talking about, affecting Mm -hmm. kind of social ease between leaders of different countries. Yes, Uh, Jackie Kennedy was great at that. Right. Others not so great. (laughs) Um, And then others who just didn't want to do that at all. Exactly. Right. Some don't want that role. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of control um, and that word, the patriarchy again, and how it stems from, at least in Western culture, from the original Greek mythology of of Zeus um, and Pandora and Athena in particular. Pandora opening the the box, if you will, and unleashing all the world's evils, much like Eve eating the apple.
3: Um,
2: And where that idea came from that women are the source of everything bad in the world. (laughs)
1: You know, some, (laughs) I I, I don't want to swear on (laughs) that. Some awful person's brain, um, <laughs> Hesiod's brain. Uh, it, 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 certainly the myth of Pandora is one of those foundation myths like that of Adam and Eve where um, the woman inflicts ba- all bad things on the earth and um, she's, she's made she's secondary to man is made first and then woman is made afterwards as a kind of punishment for man. Um, <laughs> And there's a fair amount of this kind of uh, stuff in ancient Greece. There's a lot of misogynist writing in ancient Greece. Some, some much more misogynist than that. Uh, there's a poem that go- goes through the different types of women. Poem by Simonides that goes through different types of women, and um, there's a woman who's like a weasel because, and then there's terrible things that weasels do, and one, one type of woman's like a bitch, and that's because she's a terrible, she's a horrible woman. and mm. um, So categorizing women in, in terrible ways. I mean, so it, it, there's a lot of literature that, and, and myth, that um, provides really poor um, models for, for modern feminism. I mean, uh, you know, Athena's another example, Athena's, Uh, in some ways wonderful, she's a goddess of uh, wisdom and of uh, protection in war, but she was born without a mother. She was born straight from her father's head, so that's one way in which we can get rid of women is by having myths where where women don't um, need to be born. Uh, I think, you know, what's what's extraordinary for me is not uh, about ancient Greece, it's not just that there's a lot of that, Right. And there is a lot of that kind of thing. But that thinkers like the philosopher Plato um, presented a very different model of sexual relations. And um, he, so this is the, uh, his uh, Republic, right, which is a, um, a book in which he... Uh, imagines his ideal society. What would an ideal society be like? And, and in his ideal society, um, w- jobs and roles would be given to people according to their abilities. Um, so uh, women and men have a, a great capacity for virtue and for being rational. And so you could have women playing lead- uh, being leaders as well as men. Um, and uh, someone challenges that and says, well, eh, we as leaders. Um, and Socrates says, it's a matter of justice that women uh, can play, that it's about one's ability, mm-hmm. not about one's one sex. And in some ways, that's a kind of, you know, feminist, utopian ideal. And we have to suppress other bits of Plato. There's so much Plato and there's some other, mm-hmm. there's some other odd stuff. Like, um, you know, in, a, in another dialogue, uh, men who are criminals are punished by being reincarnated as women. Right? <laughs> so we have to, when we say Plato said, we have to suppress certain bits. But the Republic was a hugely influential um, document and written by somebody who's surrounded with all of this Greek mythology with Mr. Pandora and so on and who thought to do something very different. And we have a, there's an anecdote where a Roman writer, Epictetus, um, is criticizing the women in Rome for carrying around with them copies of the Republic. He says, you all think it's going to inspire communities of women. But really, when Plato said that marriage wasn't, you know, when Plato was down on marriage for women, which he was, he said, be careful because Plato wants you to be married to the state. Hmm. Right, but, but it's a great anecdote because it suggests that Plato's Republic was influential, that there were concerns late, much later, centuries later, about women being influenced. Um, and it also contains a criticism that I think is true of of that utopian feminist fantasy, and that is that Plato wasn't interested in what's best for individual women, in women being able to determine their life choices. He was interested in what's best for the state. So. Hmm. So sort of good for feminism and then, you know, not so good for feminism, right. for
3: modern feminism. I think we've seen, we have see something similar in Mesoamerica where as, as the, the um, state evolves into greater and greater levels of complexity and more, of, more, more towards an empire as it is in the Aztec period, mythology becomes more and more patriarchal and more and more oppressive. And that's not only because suddenly dec- people decided to hate women. It was really because states are extremely oppressive to everyone right? in order for a, an ancient state in particular but this is absolutely true of modern states in order for states to function everybody has to do their jobs and, and, and follow the rules and and that applies equally to men and to women so a lot of the most interesting analysis I think of the mythology for example of the Aztec state is that women become almost a proxy in that for the general population, right? So there's, there, are very, there are very, very few people who are, who are portrayed positively in those mythologies, and it's because power is being restricted into such a tiny pinprick of, of um, the population, the single emperor, the single emperor's partner, um, that really... Uh, there's just this effort at control, this desperate effort to control everything else, right? And women, I think, represent um, a sort of an un, a, um, a difficult power that is not organized and regulated by the state. And so in... When you look at the transition between Maya mythology and Aztec mythology, you see greater and greater amounts of misogyny, greater and greater amounts of control. um, And really that's just about the mechanisms of the state. Because all of these mythologies are used as the script for political power. There's no division between politics and religion in, in in these societies. And so anything that happens in the religious world is also just undergirding the political system isn't that different than some of the political leaders we have today in our own culture.
2: Right, right. quite similar, in fact. In China, well, the Tang Dynasty was seen as, this, as a high point in Chinese culture, right? right. Cultural right. history, where things right. flowered and opened. Uh-huh. Did that also mean that women's roles opened and there was more freedom for women? Um, I would
0: say, yeah, much more, but not as uh, 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 freer or more powerful than earlier. Uh, Chinese societies, uh, like the Shang dynasty, which is uh, from 17th century to 11th century, or uh, the next dynasty, the Zhou dynasty, is when um, 11th century to the 8th century. Um, during these earlier periods, um, queens, for example, led battles, as I mentioned, uh, would uh, host. Um, Ancestor worship, uh, state fer- ceremonies, uh, held thieves, uh, distribute land to uh, uh, lower ranking officials. Um, for example, in the Zhou dynasty, there are evidence that uh, when the king was away, the queen would be responsible for all the state events and the business. So they were really, really powerful in that sense. But in the Tang Dynasty, definitely, I think uh, uh, the only female ruler in Chinese history, I think everybody knew Empress Wu <laughs> and was in the Tang Dynasty. And then she, I, if I would say one feminist in Chinese history, that would be Empress Wu. Because uh, we, if we say uh, feminism is for women's rights and then gender equality, what Empress Wu did once she was in power uh, was to make sure that uh, mothers had a, uh, enjoyed the same mourning period as the fathers. So you, um, previously, a son, a daughter mourned their fathers for three years. But afterwards, uh, I think in the year of six, um, 70 or so, and she suggested the mother should have the same status. That was very, that Not was radical. something. Radical. Yeah,
2: very radical. So, yeah. so we've been talking about gender roles as very sort of strict and defined. This is a woman, this is a man. The woman, her sphere is largely in the home in all of these cultures. The men's sphere is outside the home in public life. Was there any accommodation for people who didn't fit either one?
3: Absolutely. In, in a lot of the ancient New World cultures, there is um, a sense that gender is not inherent when someone is born, but it is something that accumulates over the life. And so there's very clear rituals that are done in order to start that accumulation when the child is small. So infants were presented with miniature tools that represented the gender that they're they were expected to embody, but uh, they could shift out of that and and change their name, so they were given multiple different names at different points in childhood that would reflect that gendered identity. And if they chose to to drop a certain kind of um, crafting activity that was so very highly gendered and take up another, that was accommodated. We don't know the degree to which it was accommodated, but we know that even in historical Native American cultures of North America, it it was highly accepted. Um, so gender w- was something that you could you could shift uh, and move in between, and there was a, pro- probably the most high status roles, um, at least in the historical period in Native America, were for people who were dual gendered or intersex. Um, very rare, but but actually much more common in small genetically homogeneous populations than in our own culture today. Intersex people had very specific ritual and you know sort of ceremonial obligations, which mitigated the fact that they were very rare, unusual people in their societies. Um, and then the, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there were deities who were dual-gendered in ancient Mesoamerica. So a lot of the most ancient creator deities had a grandmotherly, grandfatherly component, and they were addressed using both of those terms. So there was a sense at which um, deity was non-gendered, or bi-gendered, or dual-gendered, or we don't really have great language for describing yeah. it. But something that was not as specific as as we like to think of gender today.
2: Helen, maybe maybe Zeus falls into that category since he did give birth to Athena. <laughs>
1: so, Zeus is not great for that, but um, <laughs> he's a little <laughs> macho. So, I'll Zeus see that. is, I think. Uh, irredeemable for modern feminism, there's no way in which, you know. but, um, but the same, a similar thing did happen with, um, with deities like Aphrodite, that they could have a, 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 a male aspect, Aphroditus, and a, a female mm. aspect. Um, and there were some gods like the Roman god Vertumnus that could change, and you know, absolutely had no mm. fixed gender. So going to the gods is is a good place to go for um, uh, looking for um, non you know non binary um, myths and, and and I think this is so important for some of the students I teach who are looking for some kind of uh, historical affirmation and um, affirmation through stories and mythology. Um, the the ancient Greeks and Romans didn't have, uh, as, as you've described, the, the Mayans having um, gender fluidity uh, as uh, boys, boys and girls were put into quite strict gendered um, up, upbringing. Uh, but myths give a different kind of side to it. If you, those of you who've, who've read or um, listened to, to the Odyssey, uh, Athena's always changing sex yeah. and surprising Odysseus and you know, turning up as a man and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and, the, and, and there are myths like, um, t- you know, Tiresias was both man and woman. And it was put upon him as a punishment, but it ends up being a, a benefit. So he, Hera uh, and Zeus are arguing the stereotype of the arguing wife, the nagging wife, and, and, and Zeus. And, um, and they're arguing about who enjoys sex most. And so, so they call upon Tiresias, the wise uh, seer, and say, who? Tiresias, tell us the truth. Who enjoys sex most? And and he says, women enjoy sex nine times as much as men, and he's right, and here is cross, so she turns him into a into a woman. So it it, it it's a punishment, but it ends up being part of his insight to have both of those uh, experiences. Um no. I-
0: Say in Taoism, Taoist uh, practice, um, the ideal, you know, when you reach uh, the highest stage of Taoism, uh, it will be uh, sort of a combination of yin and yang. Mm-hmm. So you're not a male or female. So at certain uh, school of Taoist practice, you you have this inner alchemy that for women, for example, you through certain practice, you would uh, reduce your breasts and stop your uh, menstrual um, cycles. And then um, I would say sort of similar <laughs> to that kind of concept. Okay, we're going to end it on
2: that note <laughs> for now. And we will take your questions for about 15 minutes or so. A big round of applause for our panel.
1: Hello. Uh, my name is Jochen Haber and um, when I think about uh, marriage, there's sort of a myth here in the, uh, in the Western uh, area that it's a religious ceremony, but it's really a property rights ceremony. So how have women affected that concept throughout the centuries? Let me give you the example of one woman um, in antiquity uh whose life story comments on on marriage um and she's she's often referred to as the first feminist and that's uh hipparchia um and she didn't as women were supposed to do uh allow her father to organize her marriage she married for love which broke all of the rules and um and she was a cynic um cynic with a capital c a sort of uh, philosophical school if you like um, and she protested uh, marriage and all civic rules like that and did, did outrageous things like having sex in public. And um, uh, So she, she's a good example, I think, of uh, women's protest against, um, against the confines of, of, of marriage or against the patriarchal aspect of marriage.
4: Tony LeRae, Um My question is about... Um, initiation rites or rites of passage. Uh, we, are, we bring groups of youth up to the wilderness and do um, initiation ceremonies. Um, and we do the, the, the boys and the girls separately. History is replete with all kinds of examples of male initiation rites. We're having a hard time finding things that can kind of uh, inform, um, especially more enlightened, uh, ways to you know things that we can borrow from be informed by for our young ladies it, it, it's almost always about preparing them to be a mother or you know for things like that so my question is are there examples where can we find them <laughs> you know, um, and and should we even be trying
0: Oh, we should try <laughs> um, well in China um, I think from the Han Dynasty dynasty um, it was very clear uh, defined uh, hairpin ceremony as uh, initiation or uh, come, coming of age ceremony for girls at the age of 15, sui, which in Chinese tradition, when you are born the first day, uh, you're already one year old. So uh, 15 years old, that's the initiation uh, ceremony for a girl. What, is it, what does it entail? Um, putting on hairpin. They, we, do, we call this a ceremony of hair painting, or hair painting ceremony, for sure. And then also, uh, it signifies uh, uh, the age that women or uh, girl, uh, girls are mature in body and then uh, is ready to get married. So usually you have a matchmaker coming to your house and uh, negotiation, uh, negotiating a marriage for you.
3: I'm sure you've read the, bread, the Red Tent, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of coming-of-age ceremonies around menstruation, and they don't have to be, uh, you know, in preparation for childbirth. I think that's one way we could rephrase them. Um, I, there's a wonderful film called Kanul which was made recently in Guatemala about modern Maya uh, culture, and it, it's I-X-C-A-N-U-L. And it has this beautiful uh, sweat lodge ceremony, or the, the equivalent of a sweat lodge ceremony between mother and daughter um, that happens at a certain age. And so, I mean, I think there are, there are uh, in Native American culture, a lot of examples of um, coming of age ceremonies that don't necessarily al- always have to be about preparing someone for marriage or childbirth. Um, but you know, if, we're, if I'm speaking as a scholar, a lot of it is phrased in that way. But, in, but that's in part because we're, we're getting, you know, dominant sort of con, uh, patriarchal vision of what was going on in those cultures. I think a lot of the personal, emotional content is left out of the sources that, that I look at at least. So um, I'm sure they had a deeper meaning than just, this person is now eligible for marriage.
0: My name is Leah Laird. I'm a PhD candidate in Claremont. And um, in my training, we've been taught a lot about warrior women. And the way it's always phrased is that they're unnatural, that they're confusing. And the professors tend to say, well, they're all over the place, so it must be something in common. But it's presented to us as a very negative thing. Do you have examples where it's actually positive from the ancient worlds? And how can we as junior scholars, as we prepare to teach the next generation, not
3: be so negative about strong
0: women who choose not to bear children?
3: This is such a great example of why feminism is important. I mean, you have, you have some, you have faculty who say, oh, these examples are everywhere, and they're all over the world, but they're very hard to understand, and they're very, it doesn't make any sense to us. It's like, well, come on, get your head around it. I mean, if they're everywhere, and they're all over the place, then it must have been, you know, this must make sense in some way, right? This is a regular thing. A very exciting development in Maya studies within the, just the last five years has been the recognition that there are um, warrior queens, so that there was a certain um, group, in fact, one particularly powerful family, or dynasty of women, who um, were all linked to one another but lived at different cities, portrayed themselves as uh, hugely successful in territorial expansion. Of, and and uh, they carried the titles of emperors, and they showed themselves standing on the back of captives, and um, they wore the, the uh, warrior's costume in their own sort of way, uh, but they were very clearly queens. So, yes, there's definitely a role for them. Um, and that, in my... Opinion meant that they were then appropriating this very powerful role that kings generally had, which was about territorial expansion. Um, and they, so they were they were kind of unusual and very ambitious women, but they they came from a, a connected, you know, family of people who did this. So um, there's absolutely a role, and I think I think you know when it comes down to is let the data speak. So if the data is there, if the data show that this is a pattern that exists frequently, commonly. Um, or even infrequently, but on a regular basis in different places, the data overcomes our prejudice, which is that this seems unusual.
1: Right? And, the, and we have to go beyond sometimes the, the misogynist perspective that's put out in ancient literature. Um, so so li- take the Amazons, right? I mean, th- uh, from an ancient Greek perspective, Amazons were women who... Um, uh, didn't sometimes live with men, but didn't need to. They were women who fought. They were independent women. Um, And repeatedly, uh, Amazons are shown being killed by Greek heroes, right? That's pretty much the function of Amazons, from a Greek perspective, to be killed by Greek heroes. Um, But there is evidence, although it's it's harder to get, but but scholars have found evidence. Adrian Mayer at Stanford has found evidence that um, from uh, outside a Greek perspective, uh, women did actually fight. Women fought on horseback like Amazons were shown to do and fought with bows and arrows, And, and that there might be another story then, uh, you know, that, that's not just about Greek male superiority and uh, female, unnatural, uh, uh, you know, f- uh, female monstrosity, but, uh, you know, another story, but it takes a different perspective and it takes the work to, to uncover it.
2: This is a bit of a follow-up to that, but you mentioned earlier that um, high nobility wives in Maya culture. Um, knew knew more about like rituals, knew more about like connecting with ancestors. And I'm wondering if there are stories in each of these cultures about mystical witch-like women um, that were sort of like we're breaking the paradigm.
3: There definitely are in in Maya culture. They're not breaking the paradigm though. Um, They are upholding one of the fundamental principles of Maya culture, which is that women have access to certain kinds of ceremonial spiritual power that men don't have. So this is one of the things that is fascinating about looking at a very different culture than our own. Um, And and where complementarity comes into it is that there are, there are things, there are rituals that elite women, elite Maya women could perform that elite Maya men could not perform. And one of those that was most powerful and shows up again and again in the inscriptions is the opening of a portal to connect with ancestors. And so, um, Royal women did this in preparation for petitioning the ancestors for help, uh, whether that, you know, for a variety of different reasons. And it wasn't really anything unusual. It was extraordinary in the sense that they were extremely powerful um, and not something that commoners did, but it wasn't breaking any rules.
1: And, and in ancient Greek myth, um, Medea is a uh, sorceress, right? Medea is a, is a witch, and, uh, and, and she's interesting because she's clearly characterized as foreign um, and as a, as a bad paradigm, but she also gets away with it, right? I mean, it's, it's, she's, the, she's the only woman, I think, in a Greek tragedy to commit a horrendous crime. She kills the kids. Um, but flies off in a dragon chariot at the end laughing at Jason, right? <laughs> so, um, yep. But certainly sorcery and the foreign were um, intertwined, so there's a kind of, you know, an intersectional feminist approach is, is, is needed to, to think about that. Um, hi, my name is Alana Goldbaum. I'm a history teacher, and one of the classes that I teach is actually 6th grade ancient civilizations, which is why I came here tonight, Oh, yay, thank you. Um, and I'm so curious from these, this
0: amazing panel and these scholarly women, what would you want 11 and 12-year-olds, specifically girls, to know about the ancient world that they will not get from a textbook? Yeah, I, I think women were uh, more, way more powerful than what has been written into the textbook.
1: Um, so... I'd, I'd, want, uh, I'd want them to know that there's always more than one story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd want them to uh, start thinking about ancient civilizations by reading some of the modern work that, that women have done, say, Madeleine Miller's Circe, a rewriting of the Odyssey, um, Natalie Haynes' um, uh, rewriting of the Iliad, um, to, to, rather than starting out thinking that, Ancient Greece was great, right? That's the PBS version. That's the version that they get, is this wonderful democracy. Um, and actually, you know, for women, for resident aliens, for, 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 for immigrants, for foreigners, Athenian democracy was awful, right? So that's what I'd want them to uh,
3: I'd want them them to know that um, we're really only one generation into studying this topic in the ancient new world and that there's so many things that they could discover and be the first person to to write about. I mean, we need more young women going into these fields um, to not just to rewrite the studies that have already been done that show up, you know, synthesized in textbooks, but just to ask new questions, right? Just to look at people who haven't been explored before Um, most of the studies of ancient cultures are about the men in those cultures and about the the elite men in those cultures. So we honestly know very little about what most women's lives were like, what children's lives were like, what older people's lives were like, what immigrant lives were like. Just so much to do still.
0: And for your uh, uh, students who wanted to study science and math, Stan, may I suggest uh, the first... Uh, historian who wrote uh, the monograph of uh, astronomy and mathematics. It was a woman named the Ban Zhao in the Han Dynasty. So. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> Hi, Lindsay Peterson. I was wondering if there was any um, ancient art subject matters and themes you would like to see modern and contemporary artists kind of focus on in the contemporary and modern
1: feminist movement? Cool. <laughs>
3: There's a lot of portraits of ancient Maya queens that would be beautiful to be um, reinterpreted or to use as inspiration. Um, I don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of people working with indigenous or New World art um, in contemporary art in within the Western world. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful indigenous artists in Latin America who use these images, but there's just so much more.
1: In terms of engagements with ancient art by modern feminists, Beyonce is a wonderful place to go, um, both in terms of how the costumes that she wears um, her videos there is a sustained engagement with ancient art and and in case any of you think so i have a, i, I, I 've written about this in um, in my forthcoming book, and I I worried whether people would think, oh, you know, scholars ruin everything. They're even going to ruin a Beyoncé video by (laughs) over-interpreting it. Um, And then I read Jay-Z's book, Decoded, um, in which he talks about the need to treat music and lyrics uh, seriously like texts, and, and he knows. His, he makes references to uh, classical works all the time. I mean, Jay-Z's uh, lyrics are very multi-layered and uh, highly elusive. Um, and visually, uh, as well as in terms of the lyrics, Beyonce's is too, Beyonce's. So that's where I'd go.
0: <laughs> all right, well, before we close, we've just run out of time. I'd like to thank the Getty Villa for hosting this conversation in the beautiful amphitheater here. Thank all of you for joining us. Got beer, wine, water, coffee just right backstage, right in the inner peristyle, so please join us for drinks. And finally a big round of applause for our speakers tonight. Thank you so much for coming.